0: What
1: Was That Like? Contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
0: Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, Who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Every sporting activity involves some degree of risk risk of injury even risk of death. I bike about 10 miles each morning and I'm pretty careful and I record video with a GoPro mounted on my helmet for every ride, which was inspired by my interview with William episode 20 of this podcast. If you want to check that out. But I know that no matter how careful I am, there is still the small possibility that something could happen. Same with almost anything else running, playing tennis, swimming, you name it. But for most people, when you think of the question, what is the most dangerous sport? The answer that comes to mind is skydiving. It just seems like common sense that jumping out of a plane is really dangerous, right? But in reality, just driving a car is a lot more dangerous. In fact, statistics show that if you decide to go and do a skydive, you're 24 times more likely to die in a car accident on the way to the drop zone than you are to die while you're skydiving. But the unexpected does happen. Today we're going to hear from Eric. Eric lives here in Florida, and he and I have known each other for years. We're mostly connected through the ultra-running community, even though I don't think either of us actually runs ultra-marathons currently. Eric is an avid skydiver. One day Eric was skydiving with about 10 other people, It was a fairly routine jump when they exited the plane, but one person had a serious problem with his main parachute. Then he had a serious problem with his reserve parachute. As you probably know, there isn't a third parachute. Somehow Eric was able to see what was happening from thousands of yards away, and he ended up saving someone's life that day. He also got that whole thing on video, which you can see at what was that like dot com slash fifty-nine? It's a pretty cool thing to watch. So I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Eric. How many jumps have you done to date?
1: To date. Um so skydivers have something called a logbook. We're supposed to, in theory, jot down a few numbers and information on every jump after each time. I stopped doing that about five years ago. My best guess is I've got about 1500, jumps now
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm curious why did you stop doing that?
1: About half of the people out there will stop logging their jumps and the other half do it. I'm uh, you know we're also in the runner community and I, I'm not a big garmin guy, so um, you know, I'm just more fluid and less uh, OCD in that sense. I just don't track them. There's a few different levels that you'll try to achieve in skydiving that are based on jump numbers. And once you get past 500 jumps or a thousand jumps, essentially there's the only tracking that you do really is to show somebody that you're current if you're going to a new drop zone. So the need isn't really there to continue to log them.
0: Yeah. And I I get your comparison with the running community. Some people like all the stats and some people just run because they love to run. You got it. Kind of the same thing. The people that on, on this particular day that you did this jump, did you know everyone else on the on the plane?
1: Uh, I did not. So it's my local drop zone. I'll typically go out there and, and I've got a crew of people that I jump with. This group is is not my crew, but I, I know a few of them uh, on the jump. I did not know the person we're, we're going to talk about today.
0: And what was that particular jump? What was the altitude that you jumped from?
1: Yeah. So most frequently it's, it's 13,500 feet is the standard jumping altitude for normal
0: skydiving. All right. And do you videotape every jump?
1: Just about. Yeah. It's kind of a big joke, right? Go back to the runner analogy. A runner without a a stopwatch or a Garmin is is like any skydiver without a camera. Pretty much everybody has them nowadays.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about that particular day. Can you, first of all, you You did videotape this jump and I'll play, uh, I'll, I'll put that video on the show notes for this particular episode so that people can see it. And it's very well uh, documented and you've got a lot of arrows pointing like here's that guy, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's very interesting to watch, but on this particular jump, you called it a belly jump. Can you describe what that is and just take us through what happened? Sure.
1: Yeah, I'll set the scene for you. So there's there's a few different types of skydiving. When you when you look at a normal skydiving video that most people see, you're seeing people in a belly to earth uh, orientation. They're falling kind of like they're about to do a big belly flop into a pool. That would be considered belly flying. That's uh, one of the most stable ways. That's how you learn to fly. Uh, As the sport has progressed, there's something called free-flying, which is more of a three-dimensional form of flying. You flip upside down on your head, kind of like you're in a handstand. You stand straight up vertically and fall in a standing position, or you do what's called sit-flying in a sitting position. Generally speaking, new school is free-fly and old school is, is belly jumping. So at this point, Kind of the joke is all the cool kids are free flying and all the, you know, the older folks are still stuck in the belly jumps, not entirely accurate, but that's, that's the good natured joking that we do at the drop zone. Uh, so for the most part, I've been doing free fly type stuff for quite a while. This group is, was a group of, um, people that have been in the sport for a long time. Some of the older, you know, skydivers, not in age wise, but have been doing it longer. So they were going on a a 10 way belly jump, which means 10 people uh, all going to jump out of the plane in a, there's a group of four or five that kind of chunk out the door as we call it. So they leave the plane kind of holding hands and all together grouped up and then another five people come diving out of the plane fly down in free fall to the formation, grab on, and then we do what's called turning points, which essentially just means kind of like dancing in the sky. You'll do a 180 or a 360, and then you'll grab hands again or grab onto somebody's leg strap and and do a formation, and then you'll turn another point. Uh, That's belly flying, which I don't typically do. So that was the joke on the video, right? So what could possibly go wrong on this 10-way belly fly? That's kind of the setup. So I I don't typically do it. I was excited to be on it. I was sitting on the plane with these 10 other people. At that point in time, this would have been 2016, right? So we're in 2020. I've got give or take 1500 jumps. I've been doing maybe two to three, 350 jumps per year. So call it, call it 300 on average. So uh, this would have been somewhere around, I, I might've had five, 600 jumps at the time, which for me was relatively new and, and casual jumper. So I was still nervous on the plane, looking around, looking at everybody's gear is a standard practice because you've got this parachute on and you want to look at the way people have everything connected and routed and kind of look out for your friends on the plane. And there was a guy sitting in front of me. It's it's interesting that, that this whole thing played out this way, but I you know can't can't forget that the guy that was sitting in front of me who ended up being the guy on the way up to altitude a lot of people will check your you know they'll check your own gear multiple times you'll look at where your handles are you'll look at the way the connection points are routed you'll make sure everything's tucked in a, a lot of people are a little paranoid about it and they develop you know these OCD manners on the way to altitude where they have to check each thing three times this guy didn't check a thing and I just remember in the plane, just kind of sitting there, and he was also leaning against a bench. And when you lean your parachute against something, you have snag points and things that can get caught on stuff. And I just remember thinking that I never saw that guy check his gear. And, and it was a fleeting, you know, kind of passing thing. As soon as you jump out of the plane, all of a sudden your thoughts become really present. You know, you don't tend to hang on to thoughts that you had in the plane. But I remember thinking about this about this particular guy, and then I didn't think about it again until until I saw that he was having an incident in freefall.
0: let me let me ask you one thing um, sure. before you continue. You mentioned when you were referring back to back at this time, you probably had around five hundred jumps. and you you mentioned that at that point, you were still nervous on the plane two things strike me. One is that after 500 jumps, you still get nervous on the plane, but then does that also mean that after sometimes since then you no longer get nervous? (sighs)
1: Such an interesting question. Um, so for me, it's, it'll be different for everybody. For me, it took me 10 years to do my first 100 jumps. I was, which that is not typically common. Um, so I was scared for 10 years. I was petrified scared. Uh, I, I, and that was what I enjoyed about it. You know, I would, uh, it's a story I like to tell that I would, I'd give my wife a big hug and kiss. I, I, you know, think about on my drive to the drop zone, how I, I wanted to have fun today, but I really didn't want to get hurt or die. I'd be in the, airplane hangar waiting for the plane and, and all I could think about is I hope everything goes on okay and, and I call my parents and, and then I get in the plane and the entire way to altitude man I, I hope I don't die I hope everything goes okay
0: something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more there are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day even if it's just a few pages a little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
1: Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code
0: 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni, She's known around the world as a chef, you've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce, I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked, so when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences or go wild and have CookUnity pick for you because every meal is just amazing.
1: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what. We're going to cookunity.com/slash what. Really paranoid about it. And then the last thing I think before I jump in the out of the plane is shit, man. I, I hope I don't die. And in free fall, you don't think about it at all. And I, I love telling people it's it's a great analogy to how there's nothing to fear but fear itself. You know, the moment that you're safe in the plane, in the hangar, you can't think about anything but death. And you jump out of the plane. And that's the last thing you think about because you're just in the moment loving it. Humans are wired for this crazy, insane feeling. But I I went through 500 jumps and I I didn't jump super regularly. And so there's always a little bit of hesitation if you take a long break, if you take some time off. Even now with 1,500 jumps due to COVID, I took a couple months off. And in the plane, the first jump back, my heart rate was going crazy. And in this case, a 10-way jump is kind of a bigger jump. And, and as a at the time, I wasn't super current. And so being on a jump with nine other people all at once, there's a lot going on for somebody if you're not super current and super familiar with that situation.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so, so we all get into the formation. We hop out the door. We're in free fall. In free fall, you're typically on a belly jump. You could be falling about 130 miles an hour, 140 miles an hour. It's about a 45 to 50 second free fall from 13,500 feet until 5,000 feet, which is considered a break off point, which is where a, a 10 way formation would all go in different directions. You turn 180 degrees and you kind of star, you do a formation like a star and you just get as far away from everybody as possible before you throw your parachute uh, so that you don't open a parachute, point it at another skydiver and and end up you know having a uh, an impact underneath a canopy because you opened really close to somebody else.
0: Is there kind of an unknown or an unspoken rule about which direction everybody's gonna to go to get away from everybody else? Because it seems like by chance you might go the same direction as somebody else.
1: If you think about it this way, at, at the end of the jump in theory, you, you know you should always kind of be looking at somebody, each other. And uh, if the jump goes well, if it doesn't go well, it's called a zoo jump. We make fun of those. But when it goes well, you're you're always looking at somebody. You're kind of in a huddle. If you think about a football team, right? You're huddled up. So if a huddle was to attempt to all leave in similar directions, but to spread out, you'd kind of fan out in this star formation like a fireworks would explode. And so there's, that's the unwritten rule. You turn away from a 10 person, uh, circle, and everybody kind of goes exactly the opposite direction, but you fan out at a you know an angle dependent on how many people are in the circle. If it's just three of you, there's a 75-degree angle between each person. If there's 10 of you, there's a 30-degree angle. And what you do is you stiffen your body up as straight as possible. Think about a surfboard and a wave. And the interesting thing about skydiving that's really fun to tell people is, it's a very tactile sensation. When you're in free fall on your belly, you could think about it a lot like bodyboarding or boogie boarding at the beach. The air at 130 miles is extremely tactile. When you put your hand out the window at 90 miles an hour and you do that thing where you point your hand up and down, the wind pushes your hand. And so When everybody breaks off, it's called break off at 5,000 feet when everybody breaks off you pin yourself into like what would look like a surfboard really straight really flat and you point yourself at a 30 degree angle and the goal is to cover as much distance and just get the hell away from people because opening the parachute in a big group of people that that can be one of the more dangerous parts of the sport so this particular day we all hop out of the airplane it's a 10 way we meet up the skydive goes regularly you know, as planned, we're doing our turning points, which is, you know, 10 of us holding hands or doing whatever we do, turning in a circle and all of that goes fine. And we get to break off at about 5,000 feet, 40 seconds later, and it break off, everybody turns around as expected and starts breaking off. And if you watch the video, Scott, I know you have, but if listeners watch the video, they'll see how tiny people are, you know, in, in theory, we're thousands of feet away from each other at this, at the end of this breakoff point, point. And somehow, as I'm throwing my parachute, I, I'm looking around and I can see somebody who's still in free fall, who really should be pulling a parachute out at this point. And my parachute pops open and I, I swivel around, which again, the likelihood of me opening my parachute after seeing this in free fall pointing the other direction, being able to turn around and find this tiny little pinpoint of a person thousands of feet away that is still in freefall. Somehow I did. And uh, it was very concerning, obviously. And I I kept watching and then I saw a parachute come out, call it, you saw some fabric over his head, but he was still moving really quickly and erratically uh, from my vision. And I realized that the guy actually had a malfunction called a two out, which essentially means that he had a, a malfunction on his main parachute and he went to throw his reserve parachute. And both of those parachutes, for some reason, the main and then the reserve were still there. And when you throw your reserve parachute, the idea is you do that and you get rid of your main, you have a cutaway, you cut away your main parachute to allow the reserve parachute to inflate and open uninhibited and unobstructed. If two parachutes open above your head, you can imagine they're going to fight for control. There's likely going to get twisted amongst each other. And essentially, both of your only options to save your life, if they get tied up together, there's no third option. So really, two out is a really, really, really bad situation. And I realized as I was under parachute that this guy had a two out situation kind of follow them, which again, it's, it's interesting for, for whatever reason, my instincts, you know, had me go chase this malfunction, which normally you would see it, but you would land at the drop zone and you would tell somebody and then they would go chase it in a truck for some reason this day. And, and I, I shouldn't say normally, cause I'm sure that there's other people that would chase, you know, under circumstances. I, I certainly would, again, knowing how this ended, assuming it's safe to land there. But I saw this guy with his two parachutes out and I, instead of going towards the drop zone, I followed his malfunction away from the drop zone. And we, I ended up watching this guy falling and with two parachutes out that are tangled, you don't fall very slow. He was still, my best guess was falling at 40 miles an hour ish. Uh, so, you know, as he were to hit the ground, that could be, devastating right so so i'm watching the guy he ends up kind of i can see that he's going to land about two miles off of the drop zone i'm following him i've got the whole thing on camera and as i'm watching his parachutes and him come landing down there's a set of trees that, are, you know, kind of set away from everything else. And it just so happens that this guy goes into these trees.
0: And he, and he had no control over his direction, right?
1: No control. Yeah, these, you know, he, he may have had some ability to try to adjust it, but um, he, not in the sense that you could, you know, s- steer and park a car in a driveway kind of thing. It was Maybe he had some level of input, but certainly not control
0: and was anyone on the ground at the drop zone seeing the the problem he was having
1: yeah yeah so anytime somebody's going to land off the drop zone there's usually a spotter there's a couple of employees at the drop zone that you know will keep their eyes up on the sky they count the people that are in the plane versus how many parachutes come out if somebody's not landing at the drop zone Uh, The first response is, oh boy, you know, that guy's a a dummy. He's going to have to pay for a ride back or something like that. Second response, you know, is, does everything look okay? Is there a cutaway? And, And obviously then concern. Uh, so certainly they would have seen that somebody was going to land off of the drop zone, and more than likely they they would have seen that there were you know two different color parachutes out, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so as luck would have it i you know i I kind of knew in my head if this guy you know hits the ground, you know the way he is, he's probably not gonna make it, and, and I'm thinking, thank goodness he he landed into the trees, the likelihood of you know maybe getting snagged or caught up is is probably a good thing in that situation. And so I, uh, again, kind of a, a newer jumper and, and a, you know, somebody that doesn't have a, a ton of great, what we call canopy piloting. A lot of people go skydiving and it's all about the free fall part, but at the end of it, you're flying this canopy that that you know you have to learn to drive right and it, there's a lot about it so landing off of your drop zone as i was about to try to do to go chase this guy there's power lines there's roads there's trees there's it's not a groomed landing area there could be cows and livestock you know typically you're out in the middle of nowhere and in this case it was exactly that i ended up having to land between a barbed wire fence inside of a set of uh, phone phone poles and phone wires right off to the side of the road, flanked by a bunch of trees. It was probably 10 or 15 feet wide. I had like, you know, maybe 50 feet to land in and dynamics of a parachute. It, you know, it, it was interesting. I was proud of my landing, came came swooping in really close to where the guy was kind of yanked off my parachute started yelling at the guy are you okay are you okay i couldn't see him he was swallowed up by the trees and i went running in that direction pulled off my helmet yelling for the guy dropped the helmet and it turned out that the guy was i saw him hanging from the tree and i thought thank goodness his feet were like literally three inches above the ground just kind of swinging back and forth above the ground and i was like holy shit this guy didn't even hit the ground. It's amazing.
0: Wait a minute. His, you said his feet are three inches off the ground?
1: Literally swinging back and forth three inches from the ground. He didn't make it all the way to the ground, which saved his life and then almost killed him. Because as I got closer to the trees, I realized that he wasn't answering me. He was purple. He was kind of foaming a little bit at the mouth, blue lips, purple lips, and and the way your parachute is built, from your shoulder straps to the top of the parachute, are what's called your risers. They're the the f- pieces of fabric that attach your body harness to the parachute as a wing. And one of the risers had somehow looped around his neck, and he was literally hanging, choking, and suffocating by the tree and by his gear. So I. I <laughs> More learning lessons. So a lot of skydivers carry a uh, hook knife, which is a little knife that's built into a hook shape, a little uh, 180 degree hook shape, uh, so that you can use it to cut ropes and stuff if you get tangled up in a tree. I never carried a hook knife. I didn't have one. He was unresponsive. I tried as best I could there's too much tension on his body because he's a you know 200-pound man hanging from ropes. So I couldn't unharness anything. I couldn't uh, disconnect his gear due to the tension. So I tried to lift him up as high as I could to unloop the risers from around his neck. But I couldn't lift him off of the ground high enough to get above his head at the same time by myself to, to free him. But as I lifted him, I realized I, you know, I was able to take the tension off of his neck, and I kind of heard him, <laughs> you know, kind of take these breaths. And as this was happening, thank goodness, another skydiver, one of the guys pictured in the in the picture that you have, also landed close, probably about five hundred yards away. And as this was happening, um, I was holding this guy up. Duncan is the name of the skydiver that that uh, that had this accident. I was holding him up. And I saw a gentleman named Matt, one of the local skydivers, come running over and uh, screamed at Matt. And between the two of us, we were able to hold him up high enough that he was breathing and then unloop the risers off of his neck to get him down out of the tree alive.
0: And at what point in this whole scenario did you realize, oh, yeah, that's the guy who didn't check his gear? (laughs)
1: Uh, that would have been that would have been later that day, later that night. Kind of talking it through with with some friends and my wife.
0: And what injuries did he actually have?
1: None. The man walked away with it with no injuries. Um, his parachute didn't get uh, ripped up from the trees. He actually borrowed somebody else's parachute. The uh, the drop zone manager, uh, a guy named TK, he borrowed TK's rig. And he went up on a skydive about 45 minutes later after this whole scenario.
0: That's one of the most remarkable things about this whole story. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, you got to think, I mean, I would think after that, man, this is either not my lucky day, or he could look at it as, wow, this is my absolute luckiest day. So I don't know. It just depends on your perspective, I suppose.
1: It's one of those situations where, you know, skydivers will always say or people that do some sort of adrenaline type of something or other like this always say you got to get right back on the horse. Otherwise, that demon will eat you up. I don't honestly, I don't think in that situation, you know, he's not a a Facebook guy. He's not a social media guy. Frankly, I don't know that he's ever seen this video. I don't know that he knows he knows what happened. But I, I think third person something like this is a hell of a lot scarier than it is first person. You know, because I've had a cutaway. I've had to cut away my mane. I've had to ride the reserve. It's such a quick, scary, but you're in control. You've been trained to do what you do kind of a thing. And man, when you get knocked out, when you go unconscious, when you pass out, if somebody chokes you up, if you're you're a jujitsu guy, you don't remember a whole lot. You don't necessarily remember stuff is going good and then you wake up. And I'm guessing he doesn't remember. And I haven't really talked to him. I've I've seen him a few times since this, but frankly, out of respect, I I just really didn't talk to him too much about this. But I I don't know if it was as scary for him as it might have been for somebody watching it third person. But I do remember, you know, one of the big things for me is—is this guy definitely? There's no question. There's no question. He's a dead man if I don't land there. You know, if, if somebody doesn't land there, if, if you don't get him out of the tree, he was he was joking. He was suffocating. It would have been 5, 10 minutes, and, and it was 10 minutes before other people showed up in their cars. And they found the area because they saw, you know, somebody's parachute close to the road. He, he would have been hard to find. And I, I just remember looking at that guy. He went skydiving again, which at the time I thought it was crazy, just like you did and you expressed. Now I, I get it. But all afternoon I looked at him and I was like, that's a dead man walking. And he, was, he's, um, he travels to Z Hills or Skydive City, Zephyr Hills, Florida. He travels to Zephyr Hills, Florida every year for Thanksgiving. Uh, he's from the UK. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's got a wife and he left on a vacation to go have fun, to go do skydives for a week. And he was like a hair's breath from somebody calling his wife and telling his wife and kids that he wouldn't make it home. Right. Like it just, it impacted me so much staring at this guy, thinking his family, you know, like he's going to go home to his family and he's just walking around here. Like nothing happened. It's crazy.
0: Is this the first time you've ever saved someone's life?
1: Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully the last.
0: Oh, okay. So it hasn't happened again since then. Okay.
1: It hasn't. I've pulled people out of the trees before. That's not the only time. That's kind of a joke at the drop zone is I happen to be around when people fly into trees. And uh, so that's, that's not terribly uncommon, but, but in this case, it's, it's definitely uh, the only time in the sport that I've saved anybody's life and and glad to have been there. And the drop zone was, was super thankful. They ended up uh, giving me the equivalent of, you know, 800 bucks worth of 50 skydives or something, just, just for looking out for people around it's really really interesting it was it was very just a series of lucky things seeing the guy as such a small tiny dot in free fall and and being able to see him again and just the fact that he landed in the trees instead of landing on the ground with that situation would you know weird weird stuff
0: It is. Yeah. And I encourage people to watch the video because in, in watching it, I mean, you've got, you've annotated an arrow so that people can see yeah, that's the guy. But I mean, it is just a dot. I I don't, I still don't understand how in the world you could have spotted him, but you did. Yeah. uh, Thankfully you did.
1: Well, it's, it's, you know, as a skydiver, you're definitely trained to look around. There's a bunch of other parachutes flying around. It's uh, not, super common, but people get injured and they die because somebody in free fall falls too close to them and it impacts somebody who's already pulled a parachute. There's a whole set of rules like merging on the highway or these silly roundabouts, you know, you know who goes first. And I was talking about belly flying and free flying. If I'm on my head falling in a vertical line, kind of like a pencil falling straight down, I could go 250 miles an hour without a, a problem. And a belly flyer goes 130 miles an hour and a belly flyer because of their surface and the physics of the body and their drag, they move side to side with the wind. So they'll jump out of the plane and if there's a 20 mile an hour wind, they're going to drift a little bit into or away from the line of flight and so there's all kinds of stuff with people falling through people and you know I don't want to scare people from skydiving but there's there's a lot that goes into it and a lot of rules and a lot of things so so you know you got to keep your head on a swivel and you got to look for stuff and um, it, was, uh, it was it was really crazy being on that jump and, and uh, seeing this guy uh, go through that.
0: Do, do you have any theory on what caused his problem or how it could have been avoided?
1: Yeah, um, we. Uh, anytime somebody goes through a situation like this, you take a look at the gear usually, and so in his case, what we believe happened after looking at his parachute, um, the way a parachute works is that you have a pilot chute tucked into. Uh, your container at the back. The pilot chute is quote unquote the rip cord. When people say pull the rip cord, we don't use rip cords anymore. We have a pilot chute um, that you take and you throw it into the wind while you're in free fall. And this tiny little pilot chute pulls on a, a rope or um, uh, your bridle, it's called. It pulls on this rope 15 feet and then it gets to your container and unlocks the container through the tension of the wind pulling the pilot chute back. And in his case, when you look at the video, there's actually a picture of it at the very end. This pilot chute and the handle on the end of the pilot chute somehow kind of wrapped around itself, which kept the pilot chute from fully inflating. It didn't allow it to fully inflate. So it didn't cause enough drag to pull his mane out which would be why he continued to free fall lower than he should have. He would have tried to pull his pilot chute. He would have tried to open up his main parachute. The pilot chute wouldn't inflate. Therefore, it wouldn't pull out the main parachute. So how did he get two parachutes out? Well, at that point, he says, shit, I need to get my reserve out. And he goes to pull his reserve parachute. Hopefully he cut away this. I, I honestly don't know this, but he he should have tried to cut away his main first, even though it's not out. You cut it away so that when you pull your reserve parachute, if the main come out, which in this case it did, hopefully it cuts away. And he may have done that, but by releasing the reserve, both of these giant parachutes are stuffed in your bag. By re- releasing the reserve parachute, it might have opened up enough space. Changed the way the main parachute was sitting, changed the tension on the bag itself, and all of a sudden both parachutes came out and somehow kind of tangled around each other. And you can see that they were kind of tangled up and spinning around. So I believe that he had a an issue with with his pilot chute on the main parachute.
0: Okay, and I'm just confused about this part logistically. If you uh, the pilot chute isn't doing what it's supposed to do, and you cut you cut that away along with the main. What, uh, does the reserve also have its own pilot chute or what pulls it out?
1: The reserve is on a spring. So that one operates different. There's a few different ways that that can work. Um, some, some gear talking about gear for a second. So skydivers have an optional piece of gear that they can buy called an AAD or an automatic activation device. So let's say for some reason you get knocked unconscious in a free fall, which people always ask, why do you wear a helmet? It's not going to save you if hit the ground. Well, when you jump, and as I said, I do 200 miles an hour, you do 100 miles an hour. If I hit you in free fall, it's going to be bad for you. And so we wear a helmet to keep us from getting knocked out. If you get knocked out and you happen to have an automatic activation device, it senses that you're still in free fall and that you've not pulled your reserve and it will automatically deploy it.
0: Is that based on a certain altitude?
1: It is. You can set it. Usually it's set somewhere between 700 feet and 1100 feet. And based on the pressure in the air, it knows uh, how fast you're falling and at what altitude you are. And it'll automatically spit that thing out. Um,
0: Those are 1500 bucks. (laughs) And a lot of
1: people don't have them, believe it or not. (laughs) Wow. A lot of guys don't have them. Man,
0: 700 feet seems way too close for me. (laughs)
1: I've seen somebody uh, have to uh, count on that to save their lives. It happened right above the top of our drop zone. She, she, this woman had a, an issue pulling her main parachute out, and she, she just couldn't get it out. And then on top of it, she had an issue with her reserve pulling the cable for the reserve. And when you see, to your point, uh, when you see somebody open a parachute, so it's going to take a couple hundred feet for it to open. Uh, And they also make a lot of noise when they open that you wouldn't typically hear on the ground because it's thousands of feet above your head. In this case, there was almost like a thunderclap right over the top of the drop zone. And you looked up and everybody's like, holy shit, where did you come from? Um, But yeah, so um, the reserve is on a spring. It's tucked in there. And as soon as you pull the reserve handle, it kind of blows it off your back. That's one way. And then the other way is um, they connect it to your main parachute as a secondary. So when you release your main parachute, if you have this type of setup, the main parachute pulling away from you is what extracts the reserve out of the bag. That's a second option.
0: No doubt there are people who who are thankful they spent that $1,500. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it comes up all the time. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, shit happens sometimes in skydiving. It's always a series of mistakes. Usually it's typically not just one thing. It's, you know, maybe, um, Maybe you didn't check your gear, and then maybe you rubbed against the back of the seat in this case. So you're leaning against the seat, and maybe something gets pushed inside of the pocket a little further than normal. And when you go to reach for it, you can't find it. It's just not in the normal place. And uh, maybe on that jump, your buddy was real close and you wanted to get a high five in free fall just before you turn around and track away and, and uh, leave the formation. And so you go a little lower than you normally would go. And And then you can't read, you know, it's, it's this series of bad things that ends up in a situation like that with skydiving typically.
0: All right. Well, I'm glad you were there that day. I'm glad you uh, were able to spot him. Not, I'm sure not everybody would have been able to do that, but congratulations on that. Thanks for sharing your story.
1: Yeah, of course. It was fun. Thanks Scott.
0: Hey, you and me, we're friends, right? Of course we are. And I don't know about you, But I like getting emails from my friends. So if you'd like to get an email from me every new release Friday, I can make that happen. Just go to the website and click on email. And speaking of new releases, I have released episode number five of the Raw Audio Series. These are bonus episodes for patrons, and they are actual 911 call audio. In episode five, you'll hear... A woman who hears a noise in her garbage can and she's surprised by what she finds.
1: Is it alive? Yes! Okay. Is it breathing? I think so.
0: A restaurant employee who dials 911 after a car drives through the wall into the restaurant dining room.
1: The car came straight through the dining room full of people. Oh, and I've got people. I think I have people trapped. I'm not real sure.
0: And a man who calls 911 and he's not quite sure what he needs.
1: Okay, what kind of medical history do you have, sir? I don't know. Let them check it out. I ain't no fucking doctor. I ain't no nurse either.
0: Get all the exclusive episodes by supporting this podcast at whatwasthatlike.com/support. And I always love to hear your comments, questions, suggestions, anything. You can contact me through the website or by email or on Twitter. Or you can just call the podcast voicemail line, 727-386-9468, and that's open 24-7. And if you like this show, the best thing you can do is to share it with someone. I appreciate that. And I'll see you next time.